Thank you, Miriam. Let me say hi to everybody gathering here in the room, and good morning to everybody who is gathering with us online. I'm so glad that uh, you're with us for the beginning of our new fall teaching series. I've been looking forward to this one, a little bit nervous, but mainly just excited about being able to wrestle with some of the really burning issues of our day and to do it in an environment where we can be authentic and trust each other and handle these things graciously and well. You probably noticed that we live in a time of increasing polarization in the world. And that's especially true when it comes to matters of faith. Faith, by and large, has been removed from the public square. Not just faith, but we have really lost the ability to have civil public conversations about things that matter. And where previous generations used to be able to talk about things and have sound, reasoned arguments, now all we seem to be able to do is hurl mud and heap hatred on other people and just sort of disqualify their point of view without ever actually wrestling with it. This is true not just to society, it's actually true and it's happening within the church. People on the left, they're concerned about the masses of people who want to hang on to God and guns and outdated ideas about gender or who resist good science or who are just intolerant towards other people. Those on the right will complain that that whole view is elitist and in fact that that we have these cultural gatekeepers, often in the media, sometimes in the academy, who, who just tend to be disproportionately secular and hostile towards faith and they call out those who they say are are progressive Christians who've turned their back on the Bible and on, on principles in an attempt just to, just to be trendy, just to fit in. Famous sociologists, those of you who've done sociology in university will remember the name Peter Berger. Berger said that if Sweden is the world's most secular country and India is the world's most religious country, that North America increasingly feels like a continent filled with Indians governed by Swedes. Kind of get what he's driving at? But we live in a fabulous part of the world, don't we? A fabulous part of the world that prizes education and technology and the life of the mind. And what's tragic is that in this part of the world that has all of that, people will sometimes assume that if you are a person of faith, it means that you must not value education or thoughtfulness or rationality. And so I want to start there in this conversation. Admittedly, this is sort of an opening salvo before we get really into wrestling with the deeper questions. But, but at the base, we want to be able to say that Christianity has a place in those discussions. It has a rational, thoughtful contribution to make. I was on a flight, well, a number of years ago now. Nobody's on flights recently. I was on a flight and I had a long conversation with a man who was seated next to me, quite a secular guy, lots of questions, questions about the morals of the day, about how to deal with the death of a loved one in his life, about what his own life was supposed to be about, questions of purpose and meaning. Thoroughly unchurched. And, and, and the longer the conversation went, the more his unchurchedness came to the forefront. About an hour or so into the conversation, the inevitable question came, hey, by the way, what is it that you do? 
I'm a, I'm a Baptist pastor. And his eyes just get really wide. You can see mentally he rewinding the tape of the conversation. What is it that I said? And he said, uh, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> I hope not, he said, <laughs> or said back. But it's, it's not just people of faith that are wrestling with these kind of questions. Doubt and skepticism, uh, it's just part of the human condition. We all trust in some things, and we all live with doubt. But more and more, people who look to Jesus are troubled with the feeling that what they hold on to, the faith that they have, is somehow inadequate to address the pressing, timely, cultural questions of the day, or even worse, that it's contributing to them. Let me give you some examples. What does our faith say in the face of rampant, violent discrimination? If black lives matter to God, how do you account for what's happening in Ferguson and Minneapolis and in Kenosha and just down the road in Regent Park? What about the profound issues around gender equality? LGBTQ rights. What about the history of violence in the world? Violence sometimes promulgated by the church or or even episodes of violence that seem to be preserved in our own scriptures. What about the seemingly arrogant claims of spiritual and moral exclusivity in a world of vast religious pluralism? Suspicion? sometimes even repudiation of science when it comes into conflict with this this 2,000-year-old manuscript that we claim is sacred. The inability to reconcile the ongoing sufferings of the world with the claim that the God that we worship is loving and all-powerful and at work behind the scenes. These are big questions. They're tough questions, but they're great questions, and they're not going away. So that's, that's why we're going to launch this series. That's a great question, we call it. We want to be the kind of church where every person is respected, and their questions are respected, and they can be asked, and they can be dealt with for real, out in the open, and in an honest fashion. And our model for this, just in case you're curious, is Jesus himself. And maybe that surprises you. But in the Gospels, people often came to Jesus with precisely this, with doubt and with questions. One man came looking for help for his son. Listen to what he says, really timely words. He says, Lord, I believe in you, but I don't. I believe in you, but I don't. Help my unbelief. Another time, one of Jesus' own disciples, Thomas, came to him to express profound doubt right in the face of the world's great miracle, the resurrection. We've come to title him by the adjective in front of his name, Doubting Thomas. But but don't miss the fact that Jesus received and honored the questions that he brought. At the very end of the gospel, the gospel of Matthew, after Jesus had appeared countless times to hundreds and hundreds of people, it says this. It says they worshipped him. 
Matthew 28, 17. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus never said to anyone, well, you doubted, so I am done with you. You're useless to me. Doubt has a place here. Jesus deals with people with sensitivity and honesty and respect. And I'm going to ask that of you as we raise some tough questions, some some hot-button questions in future weeks, that you deal with them with sensitivity and honesty and respect. I want you to do so as we raise questions like, isn't the Bible somehow against gender equality? Is the Bible condemning those who live in loving, committed, same-sex relationships? Aren't all religions basically the same when you peel back the layers? And if they're not, does being a Christian mean you have to be hostile to or arrogant with people of other faiths? How can we trust the Bible when it seems to embrace institutions like slavery? Well, so today what I'd like to do is just lay a little bit of a foundation for for how we're going to do it, but more importantly, for the life of the mind that says we should do this. We're going to start by asking the really basic question, is faith irrational? I mean, is it possible to believe deeply in reason and logic and learning and science and still embrace faith in this unseen, miraculous, majestic reality of God. And I want to do that this morning just by talking with you, working through four ideas, common ideas, misconceptions about faith. Misconceptions that I think get in people's way when it comes to believing deeply in God. So if, if you have sermon notes with you, or if you have your device, you can go to our website and hit the link, and the sermon notes will pop up, and you can follow along. We'll also have some prompts on the screen. <clears throat> Four misconceptions. Here's the first one. Faith, faith means believing things. We know that. But it means believing things for no good reason. <laughs> Archie Bunker. Hands up if you remember Archie Bunker. <laughs> Talk about politically incorrect. But this is what he said. He said, faith is something that you believe when nobody in his right mind would believe it. But that misconception, that idea is widespread. Actually, a favorite writer of mine, a Harvard professor, a man named Steven Pinker, put it like this. I disagree. I don't have to agree with you to like your writing. But this is what he said. He says, universities are about reason, pure and simple. Faith, believing something with no good reasons to do so, has no place in anything but a religious institution. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to focus on on that idea, that definition, that faith is believing in things without any good reason. And the idea behind that notion, if you unpack it, is this, that faith means believing in things that authorities tell you to believe. Regardless of what the evidence says, faith means believing what the authorities tell you to believe regardless of the evidence. Whereas reason, reason means believing what the evidence tells you to believe 
regardless of what the authorities say. You feel the difference? Let me start out by pointing a little bit that's important historically about the growth of Christianity. I want to start by noting with you that for the first centuries of its existence, the Christian faith spread and grew remarkably in spite of the fact that there was no authority at all telling people that this is what they ought to believe. In fact, just the opposite. It was illegal in the Roman Empire to become a Christian. It was grounds for persecution, even execution. In other words, it didn't grow because authorities were behind it. It grew even though authorities were often opposed to it. It grows from maybe a thousand people around the time Jesus leaves the earth to maybe 10,000 people, we think, around 100 AD, some 60 years later. 200,000 by AD 200, five or six million a century after. That staggering growth. How is it that it happened? Well, it wasn't because authorities said, you have to believe this stuff. In fact, we get a little glimpse of what's going on in the book of Acts, in the passage that, that Miriam read for us this morning. Miriam, you pronounced Areopagus perfectly. Perfectly. Paul was in Athens, in the Areopagus. This is the center of learning in the ancient world, the center of Greek philosophy. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. This is the center of human logic and thought and reason. And look at the description of what happens there. If you have your Bibles, Acts 17, verses 17 and 18. Paul reasoned. Word is quite deliberately chosen, not preached, not taught. Paul reasoned with them in the synagogue. He reasoned with both Jews and Greeks. He reasoned in the marketplace. He did it by day and by night with everyone who happened to be there. Now he's stepping into the marketplace of ideas. Day by day, it says, he reasoned with those who were there. There were groups of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers who began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, lots of words there. Um, Tricky words to pronounce, important words to understand. Epicureans, Stoics, these, these were the giant intellectuals of the day. We associate Epicureans, don't we, with uh, foodies, right? Epicureans are, are, are people who are all about gourmet meals. But, but actually, in the ancient world, Epicureans were the name of a group of people who were devoted to an idea that's really common in our day, that physical reality is the only reality that there really is. That there's nothing more than, than atoms and matter in the world. Physicalism, if you'd like. One of their favorite sayings went like this. There's nothing to fear in God because there's no supernatural. There's nothing to fear in death because there is no afterlife. But good pleasure can be attained. Evil pain can be endured. And that's what life is about. Not a new idea. Secularism. Very old idea. Very prominent in Athens. Epicureanism. And then there were the Stoics. The Stoics, you know what it means when we say somebody is Stoic. Like cold, distant. Uh, The Stoics gave preeminent place to reason and to logic. They believed that 
that the ultimate ideal in life was self-mastery. Master your emotions. Master your inner life. That's, that's the road to human flourishing. It's all about logic. Into this marketplace of ideas, Epicureanism, Stoicism, Paul steps in with the ideas, with the reasonability of Christian faith. And thousands of others have followed in his footsteps for centuries since. The Christian understanding of how things are, of what the human condition is, it didn't grow by avoiding reasonable, rational conversations because some authorities said you ought to just believe this. It grew by inviting and even stimulating those very conversations, often when authorities were opposed to them. The Christian explanation of life, how did we get here? What is the human condition? What is the human purpose? That coupled with a community that formed around those ideas and around Jesus himself, a community of unprecedented love that taught that all humanity were meant to be one together, that everybody was of equal worth, and that there were actually solid grounds for those claims. That community and those ideas created a foundation for virtues like humility and forgiveness and generosity that while common in our day as virtues were absolutely not recognized that way in the ancient world. And those values simply overwhelmed the Roman Empire in a way that all of their money and authority and power could not stop. It's worth noting, actually, that, that the universities themselves, the great centers of learning, beginning with the very first ones in Paris and a century later at Oxford and Cambridge, these were Christian ideas. The motto of Oxford University to this very day is, the Lord is my light, taken from Psalm 27. And then came Harvard and Yale and Princeton U of T, McMaster, Queens. In fact, 92% of the first 200 colleges and universities in North America came into existence because followers in Jesus believe so much that human beings ought to be taught in the life of the mind, in logic and reason, so that they could understand and reflect and celebrate the love of God. That not only did they open the universities, they funded them, they paid for them, they built the buildings. As you wander around the campus of old U of T in the quadrangle, admire those buildings, the great buildings at McMaster in Queens. Those were paid for by people sitting where you're sitting today who said, we believe so much in the life of the mind that we want that to be shared with everybody so that they can have access to it. Whether you agree with it or not, faith was never intended or understood by the people who held it as something opposed to reason. It was something to be tested by reason. Let's move on. Here's the second misconception. Again, quite widespread in our day. You can't believe in science and at the same time believe in God. 
And the idea behind this is that somehow back in the old days, people couldn't explain the world the way that it is. So they just made stuff up. They didn't know where thunder came from. So they said, it's Zeus, the god of thunder. They didn't know why the sun appears to rise on one side of the horizon, move across the sky and set on the other side of the horizon. So they said, it's the god Helios and his chariot. Now we have explanations for those things. And eventually, we like to believe, we'll have explanations for everything. And if that's the case, then science really is the only solid ground to knowledge. Now, a great problem with that point of view is that there are all kinds of critical questions that human beings need answered that science simply cannot address. The scientific method works and works really well based on the simple idea that you present a hypothesis and you test it. And you test it again, you test it again, and if it continues to meet the tests, you, you hold up the hypothesis and say, this is the best description that we have of reality. But then every once in a while, along comes an Einstein and says, you know what, we've got it all wrong. And all the tests start to fail. But beyond that, beyond the fact that the scientific method is about theory and hypothesis, there are just simply questions that it cannot test, and it cannot investigate, and it cannot prove. Do people have equal worth? How important is that question to our world today? Show me the science that can answer that. Is hope in the face of loss more valid than despair? Show me any science that can come alongside somebody standing at the graveside of a loved one and answer that question. Is there a purpose to my life? See, the claim that science is the only source of knowledge is in fact not a scientific claim. It's a faith claim. There's no branch of science that is established the fact that science is the only way of understanding truth. Maybe the ultimate mystery of them all is simply this one. Why is there something here rather than nothing at all? Why should anything exist? And it turns out that science, despite the fact it's committed to investigating everything that exists, cannot answer the question of why it exists. And admittedly, as one who has a background in science, my my father is a science teacher, retired now. Uh, my brothers and sisters, my sister is a PhD geneticist. My brothers, are, our brother and brother-in-law, are both invested in computer sciences. Uh, and it runs deeply in me. But, but there's something humiliating personally and something really hard on our egos to admit that we cannot know everything that tends to exist. Here's an old story. You've heard it before, some of you. A group of scientists come up to God and say, God, we no longer need you. We don't need you to explain life. We don't need you to create life. We can clone. We can transplant. We can make life on our own. In fact, we challenge you. We challenge you, God, to a man-making contest. We'll do it. Just like they did it in the Bible. God says, okay, you're on. The scientists bend down to scoop up some of the dirt. And God says, oh, no, 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 you get your own dirt. 
You see, it's the question of why is there something rather than nothing at all? I mean, sometimes people think Christianity is irrational because it involves things like miracles, the birth of Jesus, the resurrection. And science has proven that there's no unseen supernatural realm, therefore there is no such thing as miracles. But science hasn't proven that. Science can't prove that. It's beyond the realm of what they can investigate. It's based on another realm of knowledge, the knowledge of God or the knowledge of God's ways. But it's especially important for us to understand this in a moment in history when it seems like so many people, particularly public figures, particularly those who are involved in leadership and in politics, seem to cling to beliefs just based on emotion. And they would never admit to faith because, well, that just destroys a political campaign, doesn't it? One of the great hymn writers in history, you may not know his name, but you know his output, Isaac Watts, wrote uh, Joy to the World. Remember that one? That forever redeemed the descending sea scale for all those piano students. Joy to the World wrote, Oh God, our help in ages past, wrote hundreds and hundreds of great hymns. Hymn writing was not his day job. You know what his day job was? He was a professor of logic. He authored one of the key logic textbooks that, is, that was used in his day. In fact, it's still referenced today. Throughout the history of the church, it has been the great thinkers from Paul whose writings we have in the New Testament, to Augustine and Aquinas and great thinkers in the 20th century like Dorothy Sayers and and C.S. Lewis, who've given the church its directions in its moment of greatest need. And it's precisely because knowing reality matters so much that restricting all knowledge to what science can investigate is such a mistake. Let me give you an illustration. This is a a philosopher named Ed Fesser came up with this. He said doing that, restricting knowledge in that way, would be kind of like saying, because we know that a metal detector has greater success in detecting metal objects buried under the sand, that we should therefore say that a metal detector will be the only way that will establish the things that are there in the dirt. But we know a metal detector won't detect everything. It won't find tennis balls or wool scarves. Doesn't mean they don't exist. Doesn't mean they're not buried there in the dirt. It means that a metal detector will find what it is designed to find. And science works absolutely that way. And it works brilliantly. Francis Collins, a name some of you may know. He's in the media a lot. Uh, He was the head of the Human Genome Project, but now he heads up the National Institute of Health. They are on the very front line of forming strategy about how to respond to the COVID crisis that has you sitting there all separated and wearing masks. Francis Collins is one of the, if not the, most recognized and awarded scientist of our day. He just also happens to be a follower of Jesus and And this is what he wrote. He says, science, 
Science is the only reliable way to understand the natural world. But it's powerless to answer questions such as, what is the meaning of human life? In fact, we need to bring all the power of both scientific and spiritual perspectives to bear if we're going to understand what the world is, both seen and unseen. And Jesus' followers, Christians above all people, have an obligation to fearlessly and humbly follow the truth in every sphere, in every discipline, no matter what. Christians ought to be great scientists. But they also ought to be people of great faith. A friend of mine used to say, Jesus would be the first person to tell you, you should follow the truth wherever the truth leads. The last thing we ever imagine him saying is, don't read that textbook. Don't ask that question. Don't think that thought. Churches sometimes do that, but not Jesus. He believed deeply in truth. leads us to a third misconception and and one that I think really does the most damage to life in our day. Third misconception is the idea that no one can really know moral truth or spiritual truth. You can talk about truth in the realms of science, but you cannot talk about truth when it comes to the realms of human ethics or spiritual life. No one can really know these things. So the best response in the face of these deep, searing, moral questions, these nagging spiritual questions, the best response is agnosticism. I don't know. Or skepticism. I can't know. Or or the best response is a posture that says, listen, these are issues of faith, and faith is only about Just a lot of ancient traditions or personal preferences or opinions. But it's not about knowledge. It's not about truth. You can know things, you can know truth about math and about chemistry, but not when it comes to God or about morality. It's claimed further that all all religions basically say the same thing and that they deal in the currency of tradition and human preferences. You know, one of the most frequently used words in the Bible is actually the word knowledge. It's at the core of Jesus' mission. Whether you think he's right or wrong, Jesus said things like this, and he said them a lot. This is John 8, 31 and 32. He said, if you hold on to my teachings, you are really disciples of mine. You'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now, it's not an accident that that statement, you will know the truth, is written on the walls of more universities than any other human utterance in the history of the world. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Again, whether you think Jesus is right or wrong, he claimed to know. He didn't just walk around giving dispensable advice. He claimed to know what was most real. He talked about unseen reality, about about God and about the kingdom of God. What does the world look like under the reign of God? 
What does the good life look like? What does it mean to be loved by and alive to the reality of God? He talked about what a good person looks like. When he's thoroughly immersed in that reality, who wills the good things that God wants for other people and plays a part in making those things happen. That you can't grow, Jesus taught, to become a good person without becoming a disciple, a learner, a student, a follower of Jesus and the knowledge that he brings. There is this whole body of knowledge. Christian knowledge, if you'd like. Spiritual knowledge. It's not been proven untrue because the ability science has to hypothesize and test it doesn't exist. I mean, let's talk for just a second about what it means to know something. A couple of questions. Tell me what you think. First, can you believe something and be wrong about it? Can you believe something and be wrong about it? I mean, sure you can. My wife does it all the time. No, no, she'd, she'd, she'd say, I do it all the time, and she would be right, of course. You can believe something and be wrong about it. Can you know something and be wrong about it? Actually, no, you can't. Not, not by the classical definition of knowledge. If knowledge points to a truth, if it's more than just feeling very, very certain about something, if knowledge means I'm talking about something as the way that it actually is, for good reason, not just based on a lucky guess, if that's what it means to know, if there is truth out there and you know that, then that's bedrock. What counts as knowledge in our day, though, is what's hotly contested. There are lots of things that we believe are bedrock, right? Gravity, certainly a bedrock idea. The, um, the management of energy and matter, conservation of mass, all these things. What counts as knowledge, though, is hotly contested because when you can say that you know something, that there's a truth there, making that claim... It's an authoritarian claim, is it not? It means that there's an authority there and it becomes really politicized. And we'll say to people when they start to make claims in areas outside of gravity or that the world is not flat, when the claims have an authority that, that impedes our own personal lives, say don't impose your, not truth, opinions on me. We don't say don't oppose your knowledge on me. Why not? Because if knowledge is grounded in this bedrock about truth, if it's true, whether I believe it or not and you believe it or not, then it does have a claim on my life. Dallas Willard used to say that, that pain, pain is what happens when you bump into reality because reality is just there. Whether you believe it or not, you bump into a hard little bit of reality, bam, and it hurts. But folks, we live in a day when people are often asked to consider life's most important questions. What's a good person? What does it mean to be a good person? What's the purpose of my existence? They're asked to consider these kinds of questions as matters of opinion 
or preference or tradition, but not things you can actually have real answers to. I want you to know that it has not been that way for the vast expanse of history. For most of the history of the human race, starting in the ancient world, people, including the people of ancient Israel, the Old Testament, they believed in knowledge. They believed that education began there. They said things like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind. To the people of the ancient world, the idea that education wouldn't address knowledge about the things that matter worst in, or matter most in the world, it, it would have been a train wreck for them. In other words, in our day, when knowledge is most desperately needed, it has apparently become unavailable in the places where we need it the most. And the result is that people, often really bright people, Super-educated people are plagued by skepticism and cynicism and doubt and eventually despair. And then by contrast, kind of like a light coming through the fog, writers, like the writers in the Bible, insist that there is truth. There is knowledge. Hosea in the Old Testament, my people will perish for a lack of knowledge. In the New Testament, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. Faith and knowledge, they're they're not opposed to each other. It doesn't mean Christians should be all arrogant and dogmatic about what they know. And it doesn't mean that as Christ's followers, we don't still have our questions and our doubts. I sure have them. Paul put it this way. We know only in part, he said. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. We know only in part. It's like we're looking through a glass darkly. Just a couple of years ago now, a, a scientist, a biologist, a man named David Barash, published a book and he called it Through a Glass Brightly. And obviously an allusion to that verse from Paul. What he's suggesting is that science is able to show us through a glass brightly what faith and religion could not for all these centuries envision through a glass darkly. And he says, this is a quote, the reality that life in general and our lives individually are inherently meaningless is the reality we must face. Makes me wonder if life is inherently meaningless, why write a book about it? You show me any study in the sciences, anywhere in some peer-reviewed journal, in an article that says that life, human life, cosmic life, is meaningless and has established it through scientific method, you won't find it. You won't find it anywhere. And yet, a sentence like that gets presented. And it gets presented as if it's documented scientific truth, and people just look at it and say, I guess it's true, life is meaningless. And it crushes the soul. So let me 
take you back to your toddler years. There's a phrase that probably your mom used with you or your dad that has a deeper meaning. At least I expect probably you heard it. You ever have your mom say to you, you should know better? You should know better. You shouldn't have taken that candy. You shouldn't have cut your sister's hair. You shouldn't have lied. You know better. Mom didn't say you believed better or you should prefer better. Your mom was exactly right. In fact, you should call her after the service and say, Mom, you were right. I should have known better. But but in our day, often in a very well-intentioned desire to avoid sounding judgmental or arrogant in response to other people, in response maybe to to these Christians who thunder on in a hateful, dogmatic, authoritarian way, the idea that we are still capable of knowledge, of moral knowledge, is hotly contested, but we know better. British philosopher, a woman named Mary Midgley, wrote a book with a fascinating title. She called it, Can't we make moral judgments? And she got the title from an experience in one of her philosophy questions when a student raised her hand and said, but surely it's always wrong to make moral judgments. In other words, we can make judgments, we can have knowledge about math and geology, but moral questions, questions of human identity, purpose and worth, are just matters of opinion. I have mine, you have yours. They're relative to culture and and preference and upbringing. You simply cannot make moral judgments. The problem, of course, is making a statement like that, it's always wrong to make moral judgments, is in itself a moral judgment. And those of you who did first-year logic in university know that if it's true, it can't be true. It's a statement that defeats itself. But we cannot live We cannot raise children. We cannot have a civil society. We cannot navigate through life without moral knowledge, knowing right from wrong. It's essential to our humanity. And here's where it gets really personal. How many of you wouldn't look back at your own life and wish you could go back to your your old self and say to yourself, what were you thinking? You should have known better. In fact, you did know better. You knew. But you did it anyway. The Apostle Paul, even though he lived 2,000 years ago, brilliant about the mind and the nature of knowledge, put it like this when it came to human beings. Romans 1, 21. He says, for even though they knew, what did they know? They knew about God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking they became futile and foolish and their hearts were darkened. We know better. We do. This week maybe is one really practical application of the message rather than just worrying about the things that we doubt. Maybe you want to ask yourself, where is it that I'm not living up to what I already know in my life? Where might my future self come back and say, you knew better, whether that's in matters of friends or family or money or sexuality or whatever it is. Search your heart. What is it that you know better? Because there are things that you know. Another really practical note, if you're looking to explore these kind of questions, 
to do it in an environment that's just so much more interactive than this, where you want to just throw up your hand and say, wait a second, wait, let's go back. I don't agree with what you just said. Let me, let me challenge you, let me implore you to get connected to one of the small groups that are going to start meeting this week at times and locations all through the city, usually online, so they're still really accessible. If you're not already connected, let's just flood Pastor Sheldon's inbox all week long. I want him complaining. I'm just, I'm so busy. All these requests to join a small group. We want to be able to unpack all of these questions together. And if you're looking for resources, if you're one of those people who needs to think deeply, each week we'll be circulating. It's already gone out. It's available through our website. A study guide along with sermon notes that you can use for yourself or preferably in small groups. It also comes with a reading list. You'll find some great ideas if you want a few to get started. Here's a marvelous brand new book, Confronting Christianity just came out this year, Rebecca McLaughlin, and it will deal with many of the same questions that we're dealing with here in a way that is just so much fuller, more expansive than we're able to deal with in person. Here's another great one. This is several years old. If you are a person who really wants to go deep into these more philosophical questions about is it reasonable? to believe these things that we believe. I'm not crazy, am I? The reason for God lays out the case as well as anything I've ever read. Tim Keller. And uh, if that's not for you, if you're a biography, a story person, finding God at Harvard is the testimony of about four dozen prominent evangelicals who found faith because of reason didn't run from faith in the face of it. Finding God at Harvard. You get a list of those and more titles in the biography with the notes. But here, of course, is the most important book of them all. I hope all the way through this study, you'll be immersing yourself in God's Word. We'll send you passages, more than what we just deal with on Sunday, to look into. Uh, On all of these tough issues, you'll find Christians saying, God said it, I believe it, that ends it, that's not good enough. Usually that means I did not take the time to sink deeply into the Word of God, and I want you to take the time. One last word, and I know we've been long today. This is a meaty message, but we wanted to to give time to really launch this study well. One last word, one final misconception that somehow Christianity is primarily just about being right. We got it right. Everybody else got it wrong. I mean, let's be clear. It's nice to know that you got it right. It can help you deal with reality, but it's not the best thing. And actually, it can be a dangerous thing. When you're in school, do you ever sit next to the kid who always got it right? Always had an answer? Always put their hands up? Maybe you were that kid. I don't know. It's hard to be right all the time and not be disdained for it. One of the most amazing things about the life of Jesus when you read it is that even though he was always right, people were rarely hurt by it. Now, sometimes his words caused pain, but they never came across as the words of somebody who was puffed up. 
some smart ego guy who belittled people with lower spiritual IQs. He could be with children and beggars and lepers and the uneducated and the illiterate. And he never made them feel slow. He never made them feel stupid. He just didn't look like that to them. One of the reasons I believe Christianity to be true is that it understands the relationship between knowledge and love. And it understands it so profoundly. So I want you to hear this. The church in Corinth, filled with people who suffered with the smartest guy in the room syndrome, just like a lot of us in the GTA tend to be, Paul wrote these amazing words, 1 Corinthians 8. He says, we know that we possess all knowledge. You see that phrase is actually in quotes, we possess all knowledge. It was kind of a saying in Corinth because they thought they were the smartest folks in the region. We possess all knowledge. We know that we possess all knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. And man, there is a world of knowledge right in that sentence there. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Just a minute. Rochelle is going to come and, and sing. And I, I heard it earlier this morning. It's, it's a spectacular anthem for this series of embracing the tough questions. Before I wrap it up, let me just tell you a, a little anecdote. It's about a dad, a um, really smart guy, in fact, uh, a dad with his young son, in fact, an infant, weirdest thing. Uh, this little guy didn't really care about how smart his dad was, not impressed. Dad was in the grocery store with his young son, a toddler, fussing and whining and cranky like only toddlers can be, upset and obnoxious and just wouldn't stop. And, and the dad could be overheard saying, it's okay, Lucas, we'll be done soon, Lucas. You can handle this, Lucas. And and a woman in line hears this and says, uh, boy, I'm just, I'm impressed with how patient you can be with your son, Lucas. And the man said, no, 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 my son's name is Wendell. My name is Lucas. <laughs> really smart guy, doesn't know what to do with a two-year-old. But because he doesn't know what to do, he starts singing a song. It feels like it's kind of a goofy song. He's just making it up. As he goes along, I'm so glad that you're my son, he starts singing. I'm so grateful to be your dad. I love seeing your face. It makes me happy when you smile. Sometimes at night I sneak in the room. I look at you when you're asleep. I love dreaming of what you might be one day. I want you to know that whatever happens, wherever you go, I'll always be with you. I'll always love you. I'll always be your dad. You'll always be my boy. You'll never be alone. And the more he sings, the more quiet Wendell gets. And his eyes start to get wide and, and his face grows calm. He listens to the song all the way into the car. Dad puts him in the car seat. They, 
they drive off and Wendell's saying, sing it to me again, Dad. Sing it to me again. Because you never get tired of a song like that. Richard Foster, who wrote about that incident, says that's the song that we were all born to hear. And there's no other song that can take its place. In the end, he says, God will not ask me how much I know, but he will ask me how well I loved. You, us, we were made to love and to be loved. We know this. We know better. It's why we have churches. These little outposts of knowledge and love. Places where people can learn and feel valued. So next week as we begin to really address the thorny questions. Gender. People who are different from us. Racially. Sexually. I hope as we pursue truth, you'll also be able to do it while singing a song of love. Before Rochelle comes and sings one to us, let me pray with you. Thank you, God, that we can know so well that we are loved. Pray that you'll help each person in the room hear these words. Everybody who wrestles with hard questions and fears, with uncertainty or skepticism, maybe even despair. And I pray that you will come into their lives today and the weeks ahead and add knowledge to our faith. Thank you that our lives are worthwhile. Thank you that we're loved. May you make that love flow through us as we sing it into the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.